Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. The story of the prodigal son needs no introduction, so I will not introduce it. Would you turn to me, uh, turn with me to Luke 15, and we're going to just begin. There's a lot, maybe a lot, a lot that will surprise you in the story. Unless you've read Tim Keller's The Prodigal God, then you might not be as surprised. We're going to look at the father that we have. We're going to look at the son we are and the brother we need. The father we have, the son we are, and the brother we need. So let's begin. Jesus begins this story. There was a man who had two sons. How many sons? All right, so this story is about how many sons? So some of the Bible, not the NRSV, the NRSV does a good job, but many of the headings say the prodigal son, and it's a little misleading. The headings are not original in the Greek. They're added by editors, and sometimes they're a little misleading. Often they're good, but this is a story about two sons, not one. The fact that there are two sons also reminds us of the context of Luke 15. Jesus is speaking to two groups of people, which correspond to the sons. On the one hand, he's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners. On the other hand, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, and they're saying, this fellow Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. Can you believe it? He eats with sinners. And in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells three parables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and as we'll see in this story, the lost two sons. Two sons. And it begins, the younger, father goes to it, the younger son goes to his father and he says, give me the share of the property that belongs to me. So he divided his property between them. Two critical things to note right at the outset. We're looking again at the father that we have right now. First, Jewish law did permit a father to determine which assets, especially his land, would go to which son before he died. But Jewish law only permitted for that land to become the son's possession after his death. So in wishing for the father's money, probably in the form of land, the younger son is wishing effectively for his father's death. And the real insult here is essentially that the younger son wanted the father's things more than he wanted the father himself. And second, the point is driven home by a a little peek into the Greek words behind the word property. We've seen the word property used twice, and there are two different Greek words used for each use. The first is the word ousia. And if you studied philosophy, if you took philosophy 101, or if you studied theology, you might know that ousia is the word for substance, which basically means that which is essential to a thing. That which is essential to a thing. Through Jesus using this word, which is very unique in his usage, There are some philosophical overtones here we have to note. The son's request means that the father's very ousia, not just his property, but his very being, his very self, must be torn in two. Because the father didn't go to an ATM. He didn't go to an ATM to get out his cat. He didn't draw on his 401k. What did he have to do? He would have had to have sold his land, his assets, and then the the older son would have gotten two-thirds and the younger son one-third. And his land... It's his reputation, it's his stability, it's his belonging, it's his status in the community. So yeah, he was being torn in two. And the second Greek word that Jesus uses for property is bios, from which we get biology. A person's bios are are the resources that they depend on for living. So our breath, you know. Jesus is saying that for this father to give his son his inheritance, 
he must be torn in two. He must give his very life. And then the father's answer, yes. The son takes his father's usia, and the son takes his father's bios, and he squanders it on straw, you know, uh, uh, and he's left starving and full of regret, and he finally returns home in utter desperation, and the father runs to embrace him. When I was a campus minister with InterVarsity about, uh, this was probably like 12 years ago, um, I was studying this passage with some international students at St. Louis University, and I'll never forget one Chinese student's response. Having read the passage, I asked the question, what do you think of the father's reaction to this story? And this Chinese student said, I think the father is reckless. He should have punished his son to make sure he did not repeat these terrible decisions. And I realized how counterintuitive grace was for her in that moment. This student, a Buddhist, surely didn't mind the Buddhist version of the prodigal son informing her answer. Because in the Lotus Sutra, in, in, in one of the main kind of Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha writes of a teenager who steals his father's money and runs away and squanders his father's wealth. And then reduced to poverty, the son wanders and begs. So the same story so far. But then here is where the Buddhist account becomes different. In the Buddhist version of the prodigal son, years pass. And the father becomes very wealthy, very wealthy. And finally, the, the son wanders back to his home village after many years. And, and he's, he returns to his village and he sees a procession. And it, it looks like royalty in this procession. But in fact, it's his father. But because of the son's reduced state, because it's been so many years and he's been starving, he's desperate, and his father is now incredibly rich, he doesn't recognize his father. He thinks it's some kind of king or something. The father, however, immediately recognizes his son, but he pretends he doesn't know this young boy, this young man. He pretends he doesn't know it's his son, and instead he offers his son a position in his entourage. Gradually, the son must work, and he assumes more and more responsibility, and as he sort of earns the responsibility that's given him, he gets a little bit more and he gets a little bit more until finally he assumes an important position. And then more and more years pass. And finally, as this rich man is about to die, he reveals to his son their true relationship and tells him, finally, you have earned your inheritance back. You will inherit everything. And then he dies. Which one of these fathers aligns with your view of God? The... The Buddhist parable does appeal to a certain innate desire in us, doesn't it? To, to prove and to earn and to measure up. But the Christian parable is a more honest accounting, I think, of the human heart. Because in the Buddhist account, the son performs well for years, apart from any kind of, of relational restoration with his father. And it's only upon his father's last breath that he is restored, and the reward isn't a relationship, it's an inheritance. Okay, now, in much of life, performing to, you know, performing um, to earn belonging is necessary. That's the way the world works. We must learn and perform skills, for example, to get employment. All of you know that. Um, an artist must create a painting or a sculpture in order to sell it. A student must earn a grade in order to get it. A, a researcher must write a compelling grant in order to get funded. And so in this way, the, the Buddhist account kind of rings true. And yet... On a deep spiritual and emotional and relational level, this vision, this vision of life is, is sort of like the cosmic reenactment of my middle school years. <laughs> you 
in which the longing to belong becomes all-consuming. And the longing to belong somewhere and to be accepted caused me to grasp after relationships and, and riches from a place of deep insecurity in my heart. So on the outside, it may have looked like I was performing well, growing in popularity or growing in soccer or whatever it was, but on the inside, I was desperate to know I didn't have to perform and that someone would just accept me just as I was. I mean, my parents did, you know, but I, wa- I wanted that sense of at school and, and peers and like I just wanted to belong, not have to earn it. Because performing to earn approval doesn't change the heart. It just doesn't. It enslaves the heart, actually. Love and acceptance become like a carrot on a stick, like two inches in front of our face, and the faster we run after it, the faster it moves away, and we can never quite get it, and we become like beasts running after a reward we can never quite get. And the surprising invitation of Jesus is to belong before you behave, to be loved before you learn to love, to be stable and secure before you are stable and secure. Because the human heart is like a little bit, it's like the root of a tree. You know, the roots don't earn healthy soil by bearing good fruit. They must belong in healthy soil in order to bear fruit. That's why we baptize, well, part of why we baptize babies, by the way, because we believe that you have to belong before you obey. I'm just going to put that over there. Love to talk to any of you, more of you, more of you. I'd like to talk more about that with any of you. Um, G.K. Chesterton put it this way, though. He said, it's not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico, which is a funny word, but it's a, uh, an area of London at the time of his writing that was like a slum, just a very poor, impoverished area. He said, it's not enough for a, a man to disapprove of Pimlico because in that case, he'll simply move to Chelsea. He'll just move to a nicer neighborhood if he disapproves of it. Nor, certainly, is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. The only way out of it seems to be for somebody to love Pimlico, to love it without any earthly reason. If men loved Pimlico as mothers love children simply because it is theirs, Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. This, as a fact, is how cities did grow great, he says. Men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. It's the same way with the human heart. The soil your soul belongs in is the Father's embrace. Think now, if you dare, of your most kind of shameful moments or sins. Think of of kind of your most gutting failures. Or, if not something that dramatic, just of the kind of secret, quiet awareness of your own weaknesses and your own lack and your own shortcomings and the way you're just kind of disappointed with yourself. Know this, we have a Father who does not measure you up until you've earned His wealth. He loves you simply because you are His. And if you let Him love you, even in all of your failure, He will make you fairer than Florence. So having been reduced to starving, even for pig slop, the the younger son returns to his father and he has this well-drilled apology ready to go. His rehearsed apology is cut off by the love of his esteemed, this, this esteemed patriarch who gathers up his robes and exposes his bare, aged, white legs and runs like a child to greet his boy. We read in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, 
And the father, it's like the father's just looking all the time. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And that word there could be translated, moved in his guts, ran and embraced him and kissed him, or literally fell upon his neck. Moved in his guts, he ran to him and fell upon his neck. See, this Chinese student was right this Buddhist student, she was actually echoing Tim Keller in The Prodigal God, who says that God is the real prodigal in this story. Because prodigal means recklessly extravagant. And God's love is reckless. It comes crashing like a wave of fatherly affection, which cleans the soiled rags of his son's disgrace. With eagerness that's bordering on impatience, the father ignores the son's drilled speech and instructs, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The best robe, the father's own robe. The father wraps his son's pig-stained robe with the clean white of his own. See in this the righteousness of Christ which covers you. It was traditional in the church for a, a someone who was baptized to receive a white robe. And that's actually why we wear white robes. And any of you could, this is not for clergy only, this is a symbol of our baptism. So Jacob, if you would like to come to church next week, robed in white, you may. Um, because it's Christ's righteousness upon us. I wear, we, we have black on underneath this part, right? It's not about us, the clergy. We're sinful. This is the gospel being preached, the white. But we're cloaked in his righteousness. The ring on his hand, this would have been the father's signet ring by which he stamped his seal. It's the family signature. So in this act, this offer to be a hired hand was refused. You are not, no sin could separate him from his true identity. You're a son. No long years of earning before the family name is finally given back upon the last breath. That's not the heart of God for you. The fattened calf, remember, any meat in this day was a delicacy. Um, it was, it, you know, you didn't eat meat often, but the fattened calf was the richest, best, mo- most luxurious meat possible, reserved only for the grandest of celebrations. So the father meets the son not with a lecture, not with like a reserve acceptance, but with this lavish hospitality beyond measure. This is the heart of God for you. Now remember, what did the son do? What, what did the son actually do in the story? The only thing the son did was recognize that his father could meet his need. And then he desired that. That's all he did. All you need is need to come to this father. The lavish gifts and love of God cannot be earned. They can only be accepted. They can't be grasped. They can only be received. That's why we come with open hands to the communion not something we can take. It's just something we can receive as a gift. So this point one is the father that we have, recklessly loving the prodigal God. Now then, remember the parable's audience. Jesus is telling these parables to two groups of people, the sinners who are now becoming intrigued and delighted, and the Pharisees who are now having their suspicions confirmed. Aha, he does welcome sinners and eat with them after all. So having glimpsed the father that we have, consider now which son are you in this story? Are you a sinner in the story or are you a Pharisee? 
I've said the story is about two sons, not one, because as we compare these two brothers, this parable undermines the traditional way we might think about sin. The younger brother, who seeks self-autonomy and and self-discovery, that's how we typically think of sin, and the older brother, who actually seeks moral conformity, but is equally lost. So let's look at the younger brother. First, the younger brother asks again for the father's usia, his very substance. He's asking for complete possession of what the father has apart from the father. He's not saying, can I have some of your gifts for, for a while, then I'll give it back and I'll give it to other people. No, give me what you have. Don't give me yourself. And that is a picture of sin. By definition, a gift cannot be demanded or it ceases to be a gift. So in doing this, the younger son is eliminating the possibility of a gifted relationship with his father. As one pastor summarizes, he's cutting off the flow of grace. He's doing what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. In eating the forbidden fruit, what were they doing? They chose what belonged to God over relationship with God. It's the same thing the younger son is doing. Severed relationship, what happens? The younger son, verse 13, gathered all that he had and he took a journey to a far country. And here again, the Greek is interesting. In Greek, far country is koran makran, which means literally open space. Open space. What is this space but a space without reference, a space without borders, a space without bearing? As Adam and Eve were cast outside of the garden, away from the fertility and comfort of the garden into, so the son launches himself into a kind of ontological or spiritual wilderness and emptiness. And so we read in verse 13, he squandered his usia in reckless living. You know, it's as if this, this, this wilderness, this spiritual wasteland, just consumes what little resources he had left, and then famine comes, and this is a picture of sin. No to God, I don't want you. I want your gifts. I'm out in the wilderness now, and I'm becoming something less human. I'm squandering the usia you've given me. The very being you've given me is now being squandered. That's sin. But there's also a vignette of sin here in the older brother. The first, the younger brother represents how we might typically think of it, but the older brother gives us a vignette of sin that might be more convicting for many of us. It certainly is for me at this stage of my life. The older brother is obediently doing his duty in the fields. As usual, he's always doing his duty. He hears his younger brother has returned and he hears music and celebration. And this is what we read. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, and that word is called him to his side, his right hand where he belongs. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, you have never, I've never disobeyed your command. You hear the morality? Yet you have given me, you've never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, not when my brother comes home, when this son of yours, he's disowned him, comes home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. I mean, think about how unfair this is. The fattened calf, are you kidding me? By killing and eating the fattened calf, it means this is the greatest day of the father's life. This is reserved for the grandest celebration. The father is overflowing with love and joy and celebration and gladness. And he says, son, come to my side. And the son says, no, because I too care about your things more than you. 
I don't care if it's the greatest day of your life. In fact, they're not really your things, are they? Because you gave my brother his inheritance, one-third of all you own, which means two-thirds, the rest of it's mine. You are, you're spending my inheritance on this, your son, who's rejected you. How dare you? He is, he is angry. So he refuses to go into the feast, and the older son's bitter resistance, it's humiliating. He's humiliating his father on the greatest day of his life, and yet again the father accommodates his sin. And he goes out to him, and he calls him to his side, and he said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And I almost think here of like thinking of it again as the usia, the substance. God holds the universe by the power of his word. You know, you live and exist and breathe today because God is choosing to let you. You know, everything comes from God. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, the older brother gives us a more subtle vignette of sin. They both actually want the father's things more than the father. Both are using the father to get what they want. One has been doing it by being very, very bad, the younger son. But one has been doing it by being very, very good. The younger brother was trying to control his father by breaking all the rules. The older brother was trying to control his father by keeping all the rules. In the end, both were alienated. Keller drives the point home in The Prodigal God. He says, you can escape God through immorality or morality. Elder brothers obey to get things from God. And if they don't get things, they get angry. Christians obey because they love him. In the end, this is so ironic, in the end of this parable, the young brother, the younger brother, the sinner, the one who squanders the wealth on prostitutes, is saved by being brought into the feast. And the elder brother, the Pharisees, the religious, are on the outside. The lover of prostitutes is saved. The moral man is lost. This means we need to repent of our sins, sure, but you also need to repent of the reason we did anything good at all. Are you trying to control God with self-righteousness? Are you trying to earn his love? Older brothers... Stop trying to earn God's love. You already have it. Stop trying to twist his arm with your performance. He'd rather have your heart. Does God want good people? No. He wants new people. He wants changed hearts. People who know that all they need is need, who are then positioned to receive the white robe and the family ring and this new life that the Father longs to give. So as we move into the final weeks of Lent, perhaps this parable is an invitation to you to do some self-examination and repentance along the lines of the older brother. Perhaps in some ways, you need to repent of some self-righteousness, prizing the Father's things more than the Father, slaving after Him in bitter obedience, angry that you're not getting what you want. You should, your obedience has forced His hand. Why is He not giving you? Why, he should be like a genie in a lamp to me because I am doing everything He's asked. I certainly see this dynamic in me at times. And I'll be asking the Father to help me surrender it and to delight, not in what he gives me or chooses not to, but just to delight in him, in him. So we've seen the Father that we have. We've been asked to consider the son we are. And let's end by looking at the brother that we need. I began this teaching by noting that Jesus tells three parables in response to the Pharisees grumbling, and they're meant to be read together. The Pharisees are grumbling, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. In response, Jesus tells of a lost sheep pursued by a shepherd and a lost coin 
pursued by its owner, and a lost son pursued by no one. Nobody goes out and search for the lost son, as in the sheep and the coin. Why? The three stories are meant to be read together, and they're structured this way because Jesus, the master storyteller, is inviting us to ask a question. The shepherd went after the sheep. The woman went after the coin. Who should have gone after the son? And in that culture, everyone hearing that story would have said it was the older brother's job. A good older brother would have come to the father and said, Father, I will go after my brother no matter what it costs me. And instead, the older brother is bitter, and he's calculating the cost of his brother's return, the fattened calf, the robe, the family rings, just eating away my inheritance. Grace is never free. It costs. It always costs. It felt free to the younger brother, but it came at the expense of the older brother, and that's why he was mad. The older brother is a vignette of the Pharisees who are bitterly clinging to the power that they have through legalistic morality, terrified to share their wealth with sinners. We, the human race, need a good older brother, not the Pharisees, who will bring us back at great expense to himself, to his family. In this story, this younger brother had a Pharisee, a bad older brother, so that we might long for a good one. And that is what we have. Hebrews 2.11 says that he, Jesus, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Like the older brother, he obeyed perfectly, but unlike him, he obeyed gladly and willingly and sincerely and joyfully from the heart. See, the father's robe was his, was Jesus's, but he was stripped of it to clothe you, naked on the cross, so that you might be clothed in righteousness. The father's calf was his, and he gets on the cross, and he eats vinegar so that you might have true food his body and blood. The father's family ring was his, and he took the sins that were yours, and he took them and buried them in the grave, and he rose again so that he could seal you by his Holy Spirit and seal you as a family member, a son and daughter of God. Romans 8, you have received the spirit of adoption of sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and now his inheritance is yours. But you couldn't be clothed unless Jesus was stripped. You know, grace isn't free. It cost the older brother his very life, his very usia. You couldn't be clothed unless he was stripped. You couldn't have the calf, the ring, the feast, unless he paid for it. But he has, gladly. Uh, Pastor Edmund Clowney shares the story of Daniel Dawson, which was, it was published in Life magazine in 1965. Having learned that his brother Donald had been shot down over the jungles of Vietnam, Daniel went, uh, he, he, I think he sold his house, actually, to, to get the money to do this, and he left his wife and his children in his home behind, and he flew to Vietnam, and he searched for his lost brother. And month after muddy and bloody month, he wandered the jungles of Vietnam. He searched and roamed and researched, and he relentlessly pursued his brother, whatever the cost, to his usia and to his bios, his very life. Traveling from village to village, famously, he became known as the brother of the pilot the brother of the pilot who was shot down. Do you see in this, Jesus, your brother? Sisters and brothers, you do not only have a recklessly loving father, a prodigal God, you have a relentlessly loving older brother. So don't, don't grasp after life apart from him through self-realization or through self-righteousness. Simply acknowledge your need. Turn to him and receive this day and every day the gift of the Father's prodigal love. So as we come to the table, 
You know, we don't come grasping. We come with open hands just to receive, not, not just a gift, actually, but his very usia, his very self. And let this parable and let this feast be an invitation from the Father to your wandering heart. Come home. Come home. During communion, Matt and Jacob are going to lead us in a song. And it's uh, Josh Garrell's come, uh, At the Table which is one of my favorite songs, and it's the words of this parable, the Father saying and singing, come on home, home to me, and, you, and I will hold you in my arms and joyful be. There will always, always be a place for you at my table. Return to me. Father, would you do just that in the places of our heart where we're wandering or, or wanting our... Wanting the gifts you give more than you, would you just call us home? Would you nourish us now with the great feast of your very self? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.